Hello there, and welcome to Sarah's Bookshelf. That's me, Sarah, and I am so excited to have you here with me. This is a podcast where I share my love of literature and storytelling with you. And together, we get to read some of the world's best stories. So let's get started. Today, we are continuing the novel Around the World in 80 Days, written by Jules Verne. It was published in 1872 and is one of Verne's best-known works. If you haven't listened to the last few episodes, I recommend you start with those. Chapter 32, in which Phileas Fogg engages in a direct struggle with bad fortune. The China, in leaving, seemed to have carried off Phileas Fogg's last hope. None of the other steamers were able to serve his projects. The Perreur, of the French Transatlantic Company, whose admirable steamers were equal to any in speed and comfort, did not leave until the 14th. The Hamburg boats did not go directly to Liverpool or London, but to Havre. And the additional trip from Havre to Southampton would render Phileas Fogg's last efforts of no avail. The Inman steamer did not depart until the next day, and could not cross the Atlantic in time to save the wager. Mr. Fogg learned all this in consulting his Bradshaw, which gave him the daily movements of the transatlantic steamers. Passepartout was crushed. It overwhelmed him to lose the boat by three quarters of an hour. It was his fault, for instead of helping his master, he had not ceased putting obstacles in his path. And when he recalled all the incidents of the tour, when he counted up the sums expended in pure loss and on his own account, when he thought about the immense stake added to the heavy charges of this useless journey, would completely ruin Mr. Fogg. He overwhelmed himself with bitter self-accusations. Mr. Fogg, however, did not reproach him. And, on leaving the Cunard Pier, only said, We will consult about what is best tomorrow. Come. The party crossed the Hudson in the Jersey City ferryboat, and drove in a carriage to the St. Nicholas Hotel on Broadway. Rooms were engaged, and the night passed, briefly to Phileas Fogg, who slept profoundly, but very long to Ayuda and the others, whose agitation did not permit them to rest. The next day was the 12th of December. From seven in the morning of the 12th to a quarter before nine in the evening of the 21st, there were nine days, thirteen hours, and forty-five minutes. If Phileas Fogg had left in the China one of the fastest steamers on the Atlantic, he would have reached Liverpool, and then London, within the period agreed upon. 
Mr. Fogg left the hotel alone, after giving Passepartout instructions to await his return, and inform Ayuda to be ready at an instant's notice. He proceeded to the banks of the Hudson, and looked about among the vessels moored or anchored in the river, for any that were about to depart. Several had departure signals, and were preparing to put to sea at morning tide, for in this immense and admirable port there is not one day in a hundred that vessels do not set out for every corner of the globe. But they were mostly sailing vessels, of which, of course, Phileas Fogg could make no use. He seemed about to give up all hope when he espied, anchored at the battery, a cable's length off at most, a trading vessel, with a screw, well-shaped, whose funnel, puffing a cloud of smoke, indicated that she was getting ready for departure. Phileas Fogg hailed a boat, got into it, and soon found himself on board the Henrietta, iron-hulled, wooden-built above. He ascended to the deck and asked for the captain, who forthwith presented himself. He was a man of fifty, a sort of sea-wolf, with big eyes, a complexion of oxidized copper, red hair, a thick neck, and a growling voice. "'The captain?' asked Mr. Fogg. "'I am the captain. "'I am Phileas Fogg of London. "'And I am Andrew Speedy of Cardiff. "'You are going to put to sea? "'In an hour. "'You are bound for... "'Bordeaux. "'And your cargo?' "'No freight, going in ballast. "'Have you any passengers?' No passengers. Never have passengers. Too much in the way. Is your vessel a swift one? Between eleven and twelve knots. The Henrietta, well known. Will you carry me and three other persons to Liverpool? To Liverpool? Why not to China? I said Liverpool. No. No? No. I am setting out for Bordeaux and shall go to Bordeaux. Money is no object? None. The captain spoke in a tone which did not admit of a reply. But the owners of the Henrietta, resumed Phileas Fogg. The owners are myself, replied the captain. The vessel belongs to me. I will freight it for you. No. I will buy it off you. No. Phileas Fogg did not betray the least disappointment, but the situation was a grave one. It was not at New York as at Hong Kong, nor with the captain of the Henrietta as with the captain of the Tankadier. Up to this time, money had smoothed away every obstacle. Now, money failed. Still, some means must be found to cross the Atlantic on a boat, unless by balloon, which would have been venturesome, besides not being capable of being put in practice. It seemed that Phileas Fogg had an idea, for he said to the captain, Well, will you carry me to Bordeaux? No, not if you paid me two hundred dollars. I offer you two thousand. A piece? A piece. And there are four of you? Four. Captain Speedy began to scratch his head. There were eight thousand dollars to gate, without changing his route, 
for which it was well worth conquering the repugnance he had for all kinds of passengers. Besides, passengers at $2,000 are no longer passengers, but valuable merchandise. I start at nine o'clock, said Captain Speedy simply. Are you and your party ready? We will be on board at nine o'clock, replied no less simply Mr. Fogg. It was half past eight. To disembark from the Henrietta, jump into a hack, hurry to the St. Nicholas, and return with Aouda, Passepartout, and even the inseparable Fix, was the work of a brief time, and was performed by Mr. Fogg with the coolness which never abandoned him. They were on board when the Henrietta made ready to weigh anchor. When Passepartout heard what this last voyage was going to cost, he uttered a prolonged, Oh! which extended throughout his vocal gamut. As for Fix, he said to himself that the Bank of England would certainly not come out of this affair well indemnified. When they reached England, even if Mr. Fogg did not throw some handfuls of bank bills into the sea, more than £7,000 would have been spent. Chapter 33 In which Phileas Fogg shows himself equal to the occasion. An hour after, the Henrietta passed the lighthouse which marks the entrance of the Hudson, turned the point of Sandy Hook, and put to sea. During the day, she skirted Long Island, passed Fire Island, and directed her course rapidly eastward. At noon the next day, a man mounted the bridge to ascertain the vessel's position. It might be thought that this was Captain Speedy. Not the least in the world. It was Phileas Fogg, Esquire. It was Phileas Fogg, Esquire. As for Captain Speedy, he was shut up in his cabin under lock and key and was uttering loud cries, which signified an anger at once pardonable and excessive. What had happened was very simple. Phileas Fogg wished to go to Liverpool, but the captain would not carry him there. Then, Phileas Fogg had taken passage for Bordeaux, and during the thirty hours he had been on board, had so shrewdly managed with his banknotes that the sailors and stokers, who were only an occasional crew, and were not on the best terms with the captain, went over to him in a body. This was why Phileas Fogg was in command instead of Captain Speedy, why the captain was a prisoner in his cabin, and why, in short, the Henrietta was directing her course towards Liverpool. It was very clear to see Mr. Fogg manage the craft that he had been a sailor. How the adventure ended will be seen anon. Aouda was anxious, though she said nothing. As for Passepartout, he thought Mr. Fogg's maneuver simply glorious. The captain had said between eleven and twelve knots, and the Henrietta confirmed his prediction. If then, for there were ifs still. The sea did not become too boisterous. If the wind did not veer round to the east. If no accident happened to the boat or its machinery. The Henrietta might cross the 3,000 miles from New York to Liverpool in the nine days between the 12th and the 21st of December. It is true that, once arrived, the affair on board the Henrietta, added to that of the Bank of England, might create more difficulties for Mr. Fogg than he imagined or could desire. 
during the first days, they went along smoothly enough. The sea was not very unpropitious, the wind seemed stationary in the northeast, the sails were hoisted, and the Henrietta ploughed across the waves like a real transatlantic steamer. Passepartout was delighted. His master's last exploit, the consequences of which he ignored, enchanted him. Never had the crew seen so jolly and dexterous a fellow. He formed warm friendships with the sailors, and amazed them with his acrobatic feats. He thought they managed the vessel like gentlemen, and that the stokers fired up like heroes. His loquacious good humor infected everyone. He had forgotten the past, its vexations and delays. He only thought of the end, so nearly accomplished, and sometimes he boiled over with impatience, as if heated the furnaces of the Henrietta. Often, also, the worthy fellow revolved around Fix, looking at him with a keen, distrustful eye. But he did not speak to him, for their old intimacy no longer existed. Fix, it must be confessed, understood nothing of what was going on. The conquest of the Henrietta, the bribery of the crew, Fogg managing the boat like a skilled seaman, amazed and confused him. He did not know what to think. For, after all, a man who began by stealing fifty thousand pounds might end by stealing a vessel, and Fix was not unnaturally inclined to include that the Henrietta, under Fogg's command, was not going to Liverpool at all, but to some part of the world where the robber, turned into a pirate, would quietly put himself in safety. The conjecture was at least a plausible one, and the detective began to seriously regret that he had embarked on the affair. As for Captain Speedy, he continued to howl and growl in his cabin, and Passepartout, whose duty it was to carry him his meals, courageous as he was, took the greatest precautions. Mr. Fogg did not seem even to know that there was a captain on board. On the 13th, they passed the edge of the banks of Newfoundland, a dangerous locality, during the winter especially. There are frequent fogs and heavy gales of wind. Ever since the evening before the barometer, suddenly falling, had indicated an approaching change in the atmosphere, and during the night the temperature varied, the cold became sharper, and the wind veered to the southeast. This was a misfortune. Mr. Fogg, in order not to deviate from his course, furled his sails and increased the force of the steam. But the vessel's speed slackened, owing to the state of the sea, the long waves of which broke against the stern. She pitched violently, and this retarded her progress. The breeze, little by little, swelled into a tempest, and it was to be feared that the Henrietta might not be able to maintain herself upright on the waves. Passepartout's visage darkened with the skies, and for two days the poor fellow experienced constant fright. But Phileas Fogg was a bold mariner, and knew how to maintain headway against the sea. He kept on his course, without even decreasing his steam. The Henrietta, when she could not rise upon the waves, crossed them, swamping her deck, but passing safely. Sometimes the screw rose out of the water, beating its protruding end, when a mountain of water raised the stern above the waves. 
but the craft always kept straight ahead. The wind, however, did not grow as boisterous as might have been feared. It was not one of those tempests which burst and rush on with a speed of ninety miles an hour. It continued fresh, but unhappily, it remained obstinately in the southeast, rendering the sails useless. The 16th of December was the 75th day since Phileas Fogg's departure from London, and the Henrietta had not yet been seriously delayed. Half of the voyage was almost accomplished, and the worst localities had been passed. In summer, success would have been well-nigh certain. In winter, they were at the mercy of the bad season. Passepartout said nothing, but he cherished hope in secret, and comforted himself with the reflection that, if the wind failed them, they might still count on the steam. On this day, the engineer came on deck, went up to Mr. Fogg, and began to speak earnestly with him. Without knowing why it was a presentiment, perhaps Passepartout became vaguely uneasy. He would have given one of his ears to hear with the other what the engineer was saying. He finally managed to catch a few words, and was sure he heard his master say, You are certain of what you tell me? Certain, sir, replied the engineer. You must remember that since we started, we have kept up hot fires in all our furnaces. And though we had enough coal to go on short steam from New York to Bordeaux, we haven't enough to go with all steam from New York to Liverpool. I will consider, replied Mr. Fogg. Passepartout understood it all. He was seized with mortal anxiety. The coal was giving out. Ah, oh, if my master can get over that, muttered he, he'll be a famous man. He could not help imparting to fix what he had overheard. Then you believe that we really are going to Liverpool? Of course. Ass, replied the detective, shrugging his shoulders and turning on his heel. Passepartout was on the point of vigorously resenting the epithet, the reason of which he could not for the life of him comprehend. But he reflected that the unfortunate Fix was probably very much disappointed and humiliated in his self-esteem, after having so awkwardly followed a false scent around the world and refrained. And now, what course would Phileas Fogg adopt? It was difficult to imagine. Nevertheless, he seemed to have decided upon one, for that evening, he sent for the engineer and said to him, Feed all the fires until the coal is exhausted. A few moments after, the funnel of the Henrietta vomited forth torrents of smoke. The vessel continued to proceed with all steam on. But on the 18th, the engineer, as he had predicted, announced that the coal would give out in the course of the day. Do not let the fires go down, replied Mr. Fogg. Keep them up to the last. Let the valves be filled. Towards noon, Phileas Fogg, having ascertained their position, called Passepartout and ordered him to go for Captain Speedy. It was as if the honest fellow had been commanded to unchain a tiger. He went to the poop, saying to himself, He will be like a madman. In a few moments, with cries and oaths, a bomb appeared on the poop deck. The bomb was Captain Speedy. It was clear that he was on the point of bursting. "'Where are we?' 
were the first words his anger permitted him to utter. Had the poor man been an apologetic, he could never have recovered from his paroxysm of wrath. "'Where are we?' he repeated with purple face. Seven hundred and seven miles from Liverpool,' replied Mr. Fogg, with imperturbable calmness. "'Pirate!' cried Captain Speedy. "'I have sent for you, sir. Pickeroon!' "'Sir,' continued Mr. Fogg, "'to ask you to sell me your vessel.' No, by all the devils, no. But I shall be obliged to burn her. Burn the Henrietta? Yes, at least the upper part of her. The coal has given out. Burn my vessel, cried Captain Speedy, who could scarcely pronounce the words. A vessel worth fifty thousand dollars? Here are sixty thousand replied Phileas Fogg, handing the captain a roll of bank bills. This had a prodigious effect on Andrew Speedy. An American can scarcely remain unmoved at the sight of sixty thousand dollars. The captain forgot in an instant his anger, his imprisonment, and all his grudges against his passenger. The Henrietta was twenty years old, and it was a great bargain. The bomb would not go off after all. Mr. Fogg had taken away the match. "'And I shall still have the iron hull,' said the captain in a softer tone. "'The iron hull and the engine. Is it agreed?' "'Agreed.' And Andrew Speedy, seizing the banknotes, counted them and consigned them to his pocket. During this colloquy, Passepartout was as white as a sheet— and Fix seemed on the point of having an apologetic fit. Nearly twenty thousand pounds had been expended, and Fogg left the hull and engine to the captain, that is, near the whole value of the craft. It was true, however, that fifty-five thousand pounds had been stolen from the bank. When Andrew Speedy had pocketed the money, Mr. Fogg said to him, "'Don't let this astonish you, sir.' You must know that I shall lose twenty thousand pounds unless I arrive in London by a quarter before nine on the evening of the twenty-first of December. I missed the steamer at New York, and as you refused to take me to Liverpool— And I did well, cried Andrew Speedy, for I have gained at least forty thousand dollars by it. He added more sedately, Do you know one thing, Captain... Fogg? Captain Fogg, you've got something of the Yankee about you. And having paid his passenger what he considered a high compliment, he was going away when Mr. Fogg said, The vessel now belongs to me? Certainly, from the keel to the truck of the masts, all the wood, that is. Very well. Have the interior seats, bunks, and frames pulled down and burn them. It was necessary to have dry wood to keep the steam up to the adequate pressure. And on that day, the poop, cabins, bunks, and spare deck were sacrificed. On the next day, the 19th of December, the masts, rafts, and spars were burned. The crew worked lustily, keeping up the fires. Passepartout hewed, cut, and sawed away with all his might. There was a perfect rage for demolition. The railings, fittings, the greater part of the deck, and the top sides disappeared on the 20th. And the Henrietta was now only a flat hulk. 
but on this day they sighted the Irish coast and fastnet light. By ten in the evening they were passing Queenstown. Phileas Fogg had only twenty-four hours more in which to get to London. That length of time was necessary to reach Liverpool with all steam on, and the steam was about to give out altogether. Sir, said Captain Speedy, who was now deeply interested in Mr. Fogg's project, I really commiserate you. Everything is against you. We are only opposite Queenstown. Ah, said Mr. Fogg, is that place where you see the lights, Queenstown? Yes. Can we enter the harbour? Not under three hours, only at high tide. Stay, replied Mr. Fogg calmly, without betraying in his features that by a supreme inspiration he was about to attempt once more to conquer ill fortune. Queenstown is the Irish port at which the transatlantic steamers stop to put off the mails. These mails are carried to Dublin by express trains always held in readiness to start. From Dublin, they are sent on to Liverpool by the most rapid boats, and thus gain twelve hours on the Atlantic steamers. Phileas Fogg counted on gaining twelve hours in the same way. Instead of arriving at Liverpool the next evening by the Henrietta, he would be there by noon, and would therefore have time to reach London before a quarter before nine in the evening. The Henrietta entered Queenstown Harbour at one o'clock in the morning, it then being high tide, and Phileas Fogg, after being grasped heartily by the hand by Captain Speedy, left that gentleman on the levelled hulk of his craft, which was still worth half what he had sold it for. The party went on shore at once. Fix was greatly tempted to arrest Mr. Fogg on the spot, but he did not. Why? What struggle was going on within him? Had he changed his mind about his man? Did he understand that he had made a grave mistake? He did not, however, abandon Mr. Fogg. They all got upon the train, which was just ready to start at half-past one. At dawn of day they were in Dublin, and they lost no time in embarking on a steamer which, disdaining to rise upon the waves, invariably cut through them. Phileas Fogg at last disembarked on the Liverpool Quay at twenty minutes before twelve the 21st of December. He was only six hours distant from London. But at this moment, Fix came up, put his hand upon Mr. Fogg's shoulder, and showing his warrant, said, You are really Phileas Fogg? I am. I arrest you in the Queen's name. Chapter 34 In which Phileas Fogg at last reaches London Phileas Fogg was in prison. He had been shut up in the Custom House, and he was to be transferred to London the next day. Passepartout, when he saw his master arrested, would have fallen upon Fix had he not been held back by some policeman. Ayuda was thunderstruck at the suddenness of an event which she could not understand. Passepartout explained to her how it was that the honest and courageous Fogg was arrested as a robber. The young woman's heart revolted against so heinous a charge, and when she saw that she could attempt to do nothing to save her protector, she wept bitterly. As for Fix, he had arrested Mr. Fogg because it was his duty, whether Mr. Fogg were guilty or not. 
The thought then struck Passepartout that he was the cause of this new misfortune. Had he not concealed Fix's errand from his master? When Fix revealed his true character and purpose, why had he not told Mr. Fogg? If the latter had been warned, he would no doubt have given Fix proof of his innocence and satisfied him of his mistake. At least, Fix would not have continued his journey at the expense and on the heels of his master, only to arrest him the moment he set foot on English soil. Passepartout wept till he was blind and felt like blowing his brains out. Ayuda and he remained, despite the cold, under the portico of the custom house. Neither wished to leave the place. Both were anxious to see Mr. Fogg again. That gentleman was really ruined, and just at the moment when he was about to attain his end. This arrest was fatal. Having arrived at Liverpool at twenty minutes before twelve on the 21st of December, he had till a quarter before nine that evening to reach the Reform Club. That is, nine hours and a quarter. The journey from Liverpool to London was six hours. If anyone, at this moment, had entered the Custom House, he would have found Mr. Fogg seated, motionless, calm, and without apparent anger, upon a wooden bench. He was not, it is true, resigned, but this last blow failed to force him into an outward betrayal of any emotion. Was he being devoured by one of those secret rages, all the more terrible because contained, and which only burst forth with an irresistible force at the last moment? No one could tell. There he sat, calmly waiting. For what? Did he still cherish hope? Did he still believe, now that the door of this prison was closed upon him, that he would succeed? However that may have been, Mr. Fogg carefully put his watch upon the table and observed its advancing hands. Not a word escaped his lips, but his look was singularly set and stern. The situation, in any event, was a terrible one, and might be thus stated, if Phileas Fogg was honest, he was ruined. If he was a knave, he was caught. Did escape occur to him? Did he examine to see if there were any practicable outlet from this prison? Did he think of escaping from it? Possibly. For once he walked slowly around the room. But the door was locked, and the window heavily barred with iron rods. He sat down again and drew his journal from his pocket. On the line where these words were written, 21st December, Saturday, Liverpool. He added, 80th day, 11.40 a.m., and waited. The custom house clock struck one. Mr. Fogg observed that his watch was two hours too fast. Two hours! Admitting that he was at this moment taking an express train, he could reach London and the Reform Club by a quarter before 9 p.m., his forehead slightly wrinkled. At thirty-three minutes past two, he heard a singular noise outside, then a hasty opening of doors. Passepartout's voice was audible, and immediately after that, a fix. Phileas Fogg's eyes brightened for an instant. Fix was out of breath, and his hair was in disorder. He could not speak. <sighs> sir, he stammered. Sir, forgive me. 
Uh, a most unfortunate resemblance. The robber was arrested three days ago. You are free. Phileas Fogg was free. He walked to the detective, looked him steadily in the face, and with the only rapid motion he had ever made in his life, or which he ever would make, drew back his arms, and with the precision of a machine, knocked Fix down. Well hit, cried Passepartout. Parbleu, that's what you might call a good application of English fists. Fix, who found himself on the floor, did not utter a word. He had only received his desserts. Mr. Fogg, Ayuda, and Passepartout left the custom house without delay, got into a cab, and in a few moments descended at the station. Phileas Fogg asked if there was an express train about to leave for London. It was forty minutes past two. The express train had left thirty-five minutes before. Phileas Fogg then ordered a special train. There were several rapid locomotives on hand, but the railway arrangements did not permit the special train to leave until three o'clock. At that hour, Phileas Fogg, having stimulated the engineer by the offer of a generous reward, at last set out towards London with Ayuda and his faithful servant. It was necessary to make the journey in five hours and a half, and this would have been easy on a clear road throughout. But there were forced delays, and when Mr. Fogg stepped from the train at the terminus, all the clocks in London were striking ten minutes before nine. Having made the tour of the world, he was behind hand five minutes. He had lost the wager. Thank you for indulging in a story with me today. If you enjoyed it, please consider following and rating the podcast. It helps other people find and enjoy the show too. If you want to get in touch with me, there's an email in the show notes, and I'd love to hear from you. Our show music was composed by my dear friend Rachel Robinson, played by the wonderful Andreas Gateman, and audio engineered by the talented Devin Lamont of the band Crash Kick. Our episode album art was drawn by the exquisite Georgia McInnes. We'll be back next week with the last part of this wonderful story. Till next time, friends.